being reasonable. Now heard on WHUPLP Hillsborough, WCOM Carborough, and WPVM Asheville. Being Reasonable comes to you from the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsborough, North Carolina. I'm Mark Solomon, and you are taking part in Being Reasonable, the weekly conversation show that focuses on how we've arrived on our steadfast views and our desire to know what is true. To participate in this friendly collaboration, all you need is respectfulness and an honest interest in the truth. We can all improve the way we form and consider our beliefs. And we can do so by being reasonable. One, two. On this week's show, we speak with Lauren Hall from Modern Day Hypnosis in Greensboro, North Carolina. Lauren discusses her belief in the power of hypnosis. So let's speak with Lauren Hall. Hypnosis has so many definitions, and every person's going to have their own experience and understanding. The definition I like the most of hypnosis is bypassing the conscious critical faculty of the mind. So that means you can experience hypnosis without being in a trance state. You could be in a regular, fully awake state even with your eyes open, walking around. But if the person has presented a concept that bypasses your critical faculty, then they have hypnotized you. To be hypnotized, though, the participant would have had to give focus. How does hypnotism differ from other physical states? I'm really just trying to understand the basics of what hypnotism is. Are you actually in a, a testable, measurable, different state than you are than if you're not hypnotized, or is that something that's not really measurable? To me, it's the measurability is arbitrary because it's individual, and it's individual during that experience of hypnosis. And we are in states of hypnosis regularly, even when we aren't working with a hypnotist or have any intention of self-hypnosis. So to me, hypnosis is the philosophy and, and less of a technique. It's the philosophy that our subconscious mind um, is being influenced by information that bypasses our, our regular processing analytical brain. If we're unable to measure it in an objective way, how mm-hmm. do we know when somebody is being hypnotized or not? There are indicators of hypnosis, the hypnotic sigh, which is sort of when a person, you know, takes a deeper breath out and you can see uh, that their body language relaxes, body temperature change, eyes tearing, uh, even, you know, eye movement if the subject's eyes are closed. These are signals of hypnosis. There are so many test indicators like depth testing, and I've heard even as many depth testing models as there are induction techniques, which those are endless. Is there a fundamental difference between someone who is hypnotized and someone who has been given a suggestion to act in a certain way or be in a certain state? I wouldn't say there's a difference. It's it, To me, that's the, the context of the use of that word. 
you know, this person is in a state of hypnosis or that person has previously been hypnotized. So if I say someone is in a state of suggestion, there's really no difference when I'm saying, oh, there's no difference. To me, there wouldn't be. Yeah. I mean, every hypnotist might have a different understanding, you know, based on the function that they use hypnosis in. A lot of the people, when I go to conventions, you know, for hypnotists, um, it's really interesting because there's so many people, you know, in the psychic realm and in the the medical, uh, physical, uh, you know, psychology realm. Yeah. And I sort of fall right in the middle, just keeping my mind open to what could be applicable to the people that might come into my office for uh, change work. Right. So for the purpose of our conversation, we can talk about hypnotism as being in a state where, you're highly suggestible to commands or ideas from other people. Mm-hmm. I might think so, yeah, that we're we're in a state of suggestibility all the time, right? Our, our brain is analyzing a portion of the data that our body is taking in. And if a person is using hypnosis with you, then they're going to have a particular goal. You know, in, in a stage arena, that goal might be for entertainment, right? Some really dramatic suggestions, but in a clinical application, then you really could make permanent behavioral shifts by changing a perspective. Sort of the premise, once you learn something, you don't unlearn it. You know, not as long as you like what you've learned. Let's say I have a fear of public speaking. I have this uh, social phobia and I come to you and I tell you that I, I have this intense fear of speaking in front of others. What would you do? What would be the next plan of action? You might find your motivation. Why do you want to put yourself in a, a public speaking place? You know, do you have to for your job or do you desire to for your um, career? And then in hypnosis, we could use different techniques to either future pace you, have you, you know, picture yourself in front of an audience and you feel really comfortable. You know, so maybe you feel really comfortable when you're hosting a dinner party. So I might say, okay, imagine you're hosting that dinner party and then sort of tack that feeling into your body and now put yourself in that experience of being on that stage. Or we could do the reverse and go back in regression and say, what are times, you know, in different experiences where you had felt a stress with public speaking? It seems like that you're alluding to some cognitive behavioral techniques where a person might be sitting in your office and you could employ imagined desensitization techniques or flooding or... Just various techniques like that. What is flooding? Well, flooding would be where if someone has a fear of public speaking and you make them go in front of a okay. crowd of, you know, 3,000 people in public speak and, well, like you've done that. Like therapy. <laughs> right. Okay, yeah. yeah right. That's yeah, not exposure, my technique. Yeah. Some, yeah. T- some hypnotists, um, that's their technique. And as a hypnotist, you need to employ the technique that most resonates to your uh, constructs of beliefs. But in that situation, what is the extra that hypnotism is giving you? Like if you're employing cognitive behavioral techniques for someone to overcome, let's say, a fear of public speaking, what is the extra special sauce that hypnotism brings to the table? To me, the person making this decision has already set the momentum. And then as a hypnotist, I'm, in a sense, pressing an imaginary permission button in their brain. It's my belief that our brains behave differently when they're being observed. So when you have a person hypnotizing you, and I would explain it as I'm more dehypnotizing that person's uh, beliefs and setting a construct for a new potential of things that are believable enough, meaning you can create an experience and generate a feeling that produces a brain chemistry 
that puts the body into either a heightened state of this is a pleasure that I desire and it's pretty achievable. You confused me with a little, a little with a dehypnotization. I'm just really trying to understand what is the process. What is hypnotism doing for the person? And for example, if someone mm-hmm. came to your office and maybe instead of hypnotizing them, quote unquote, you just asked them to go through a series of relaxation techniques. And then you started your maybe cognitive behavioral techniques. Right. What is hypnotism doing? What is the actual? To me, hypnotism would be the process. Okay. And not the process of, of the entire purpose on that of that meeting. You know, they've come to this meeting to maybe give me a, a snapshot of what beliefs they have, what things they want. And then in a sense, like a creative director, I'm helping collaborate with them a story that's just new and better. If someone came into your office and they said that they had an issue that they wanted to discuss, and instead of hypnotism, you said, what we're going to do is you're going to tell me your story and we're going to reframe your story. We're going to change your story and we're going to make it different and more palatable for you. Am I discussing hypnotism or am I discussing something else? Yeah, it's hard. That's hard to say to me. It's hard to define which of those crosses the border of another labeled therapy service. Trying to follow you. Okay. I'm trying to get there. I'm really, and I apologize because it's my... It's not you. No, I... No, no, it's me. I it's have me. to explain. If I'm not being clear, it's me. No, it's, it's, it, trust me, it's me because I really try to, in my mind, mm-hmm. for me to understand what hypnosis is, it helps me to distinguish from what it's not. Because if I know what it's not, then... Well, yes, and I I love that you want to know, and fortunately for people who want uh, to work with me to do hypnosis, I tell them you don't need to know. You don't. It doesn't matter to know anything even about it. I might tell them some things to ease them, um, but it's hard to explain because there's so many different opinions. Hypnosis to me is not a state. Hypnosis is the philosophy that we are suggestible and suggestibility heightens at different states. It sounds like hypnotism can be what you want it to be. It can fall under a lot of definitions and do different things, and we're not sure why exactly it works. True. We aren't sure why it works, but I I disagree that it can be whatever we believe it to be, because to me, it just is this way that our brain interacts with all the ideas it has about factual past experience or um, perceptions of past experience, even future projections, all of that, even our present awareness is happening so simultaneously that our brain has created these rooms. And maybe hypnosis would be our personal decision or someone outside of us influencing us to go into a specific room. All the rooms always exist, but you can only be in one room at a time. So you are being hypnotized to be in that room. So it does seem like there is at least a few premises that it rests on, that our brain functions in some sense of using different rooms, right? Well, that was just an analogy. I mean, that's not one that I've used before. Okay. And as a hypnotist, that's analogies are somewhat of my realm. So I can give more analogies to understand it and defining it is really fun because um, it's really pushing us to 
put the appropriate analogy into an understanding of how hypnosis exists, right? Is that sort of what you're you're hoping to hear? Like how hypnosis is a segment that exists because what does it do and meaning what does it not do? Well, yes. I think what you're talking about brings up what I'm trying to figure out that if hypnotism can be this and it can be that and it's difficult to define, mm-hmm. how do we know it exists? Most people might not know it exists. They might think it's something that some people are doing to other people and it's not in my life and I'm never going to do it. I, I couldn't be hypnotized anyways, even if I wanted to or needed to. But I presume that you believe that it's real, that it's true, that it's objective. This is some universal truth in the world. I do, yeah. yes. That if we didn't exist, you and I, hypnotism would still work. If we did not exist? You and I. But hypnotism yeah. would work regardless of us. Hypnotism is working even if we weren't aware of it. Uh, animals are hypnotized. You know, if you think about hypnosis is a state of focus that elicits uh, the specific rooms of those beliefs. What if I told you that I like to put people in golden states, meaning they feel cool, they feel great about themselves? Golden states. I'm just making this up. Okay. And people come to my office and I'm saying, I'm going to put you in a golden state and you're going to feel better afterwards, and uh, animals can put each other into golden states, meaning other animals can can make each other feel better about themselves, let's say. When I'm saying that, am I saying anything different than if I'm putting somebody in a hypnotic state, or am I just not understanding what a hypnotic state is? Well, a hypnotic state usually does feel euphoric, but I would think in that context— the hypnosis is the process and the golden state is the result. So you, you aren't putting people in a hypnotic state. You're putting people in a golden state. But okay. hypnosis is putting people in a golden state. So what's the process then that is differentiating that? The intended outcome. I mean, you've talked to this subject or client and you said this is the, the goal, the outcome. This is what we're about to do. Yeah. So what distinguishes a golden state from a hypnotic state is telling the person, whether they're going to enter a golden state versus a hypnotic. Right, cause, because a, a hypnotic state doesn't have a context. If I tell a person, I'm going to put you into a hypnotic state, they might think, and then what? You know, or, or what is that like? How am I going to feel? And if I say, I'm going to put you into a hypnotic state and it's going to feel amazing, then I'm really putting them in an amazing state using hypnosis. Okay. Using suggestive therapy, using um, a, a focus with their mind to help them get into what they individually perceive as being awesome, right? For some people, awesome might be uh, safe, coddled, warm. For other people, it might be, you know, on a beach, a private island. If I tell somebody that I'm going to put them in a golden state via suggestibility, mm-hmm. then am I talking about hypnotism? Yeah, you are, I would say. You're, using, you're, you're about to do hypnosis. Okay. So it's kind of... To me, hypnosis is the thing our brain is doing. You know, if I'm coming upstairs and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to be happy when I get upstairs, then I'm hypnotizing myself to kind of experience that happy state. So hypnosis is just happening even without a service or a, uh, an intention of using a specific technique. Okay, so if I want to feel better about myself and 
hypnosis would just be the act of me saying to myself, I want to feel better, feel better. I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but I'm just trying to understand. I mean, yeah, I do think that's, yes. Yeah, I think hypnosis is that. It's as simple as that. And we are doing it all the time in in conjunction to other hypnotic uh, suggestions. That's to me, is what hypnosis is. When I'm using hypnosis with people in my office, it's possible that I'm employing other labeled techniques. But because to me, there are 200 words to describe basically the same thing, which, which is hypnosis, then I'm just calling all of those things hypnosis. I mean, I'm not practicing outside of my licensing, but I'm using whatever is most appropriate for the person in front of me based on the goals they want. Are there things that hypnotism can do versus can't do? There are definitely things hypnosis can't do because you cannot hypnotize a person to their avail. You have... They have to want to be hypnotized. They have to participate. They may not want the exact same goal, and that's where, uh, you know, a normal way hypnosis is portrayed, which is with, like, negative cult leaders who have abused people. And it's true that they were using hypnosis, but they had also an ongoing relationship and, in a sense, kind of beat this person into submission. But most people... If I wanted to use hypnotism for ill, Mm -hmm. could I? To my opinion, only to a certain level, because our innate intelligence, you know, sort of the the intelligence that helps uh, maintain and and generate ever-evolving life in us, will not let us be hypnotized to a negative outcome. Why? Because our uh, cellular intelligence desires to exist and to continue existing. I'm sorry, our cellular intelligence? Our cellular, yeah. Our, our, to me, I'm a, I'm a billion little minions sort of hanging out in this form. And you could hypnotize some of them, but not all of them to a negative purpose. But you can very easily hypnotize all of them to a positive purpose. Because when there's a positive purpose, and I'm meaning positive sort of in a, a heartfelt state, you know, when we're not in that fight or flight, and when we're positive, then we have more of a flow, meaning things are happening with more ease and less effort or struggle. And that is what these cells would desire for this system, you know, my internal galaxy to have, which would be, let's say, organized, structured. So I had a conversation once um, with a client who's a great friend now. And there are things that I'll say with just different clients that uh, they just come out of me. It's not thoughts that I had had previously so to my opinion, these people are pulling these thoughts out. Their intelligence is just being reflected on my non-judgmented form that's holding awareness on them. And so they're having a conversation with themselves through me. But I said this thing to this person, which was that matter exists at the formation of what we had projected onto it. And so sort of like how light has a little bit of delay, we've projected this idea onto matter and matter is showing up in that way. But by the time matter uh, pulls itself together, which I'm talking about milliseconds, our mind already has evolved. Our thoughts already are sort of newer and bigger. And so we can kind of look back and think, hmm, do I or don't I like this? Because at that time you might had perceived that you would, which is why you tested it. We're just, we're kind of uh, energy that continues to test itself. 
Again, I'm trying to follow you. I know. Uh, it, and, you know, sometimes it's just we're using different language, you know? Course. Yes. Does hypnosis just rest on physical states or does it rest on non-physical, what we'd call supernatural states mm-hmm. as well? I might say supernatural because to me, physical states are just kind of mass groupings of. So of there's non- a supernatural element to it. Um, if, if we're going to to say that, then I think people's minds might make that assumption in a way, kind of write it off and think, okay, I don't believe in supernatural paranormal things. So now I guess I can't believe in hypnosis because hypnosis is sort of like a, a magical energy. And what I think is more accurate is that hypnosis is a finesse of language, right? We're using words to express our ideas, sort of like we have these pictures and a picture is a thousand words. So hopefully we would use less than a thousand words to describe these pictures. Yes. And that's what I'm trying to understand is that hypnosis, as you just described it, is using language to finesse an idea. I'm trying to understand, is this idea true? Is it a real idea? And if it is, how could we know that it's a real idea? Meaning, how could we distinguish hypnosis from something else? Okay. I think that we are functioning on foundations of beliefs, which are just lies that we are telling ourselves. And there is only truth that we exist. To me, that is the only non-arguable truth. Okay. So there's lies we tell ourselves, or maybe we can call this perceptions and misperceptions. Mm -hmm. And the only truth that's out there is that you and I exist. Mm -hmm. And there's no other truth. Well, we could break it down that there are no, there's no other things that are that true. Okay. So you've heard the show before, Mm -hmm. and you might have heard this example. I have a number of chickens running around my yard. There are even or odd number of chickens. Mm -hmm. I might not know the answer. You might not know the answer. But it could be said Mm -hmm. that there is a truth there, a universal truth about how many chickens there are. A universal truth? Mm -hmm. So the whole universe is aware of how many chickens you have in your yard, and you'll have a belief, right? I'm sorry, back up. Is a whole universe. Well, you said universal truth, right? So that yes, means every... Meaning whether we exist or perception. don't exist or we live or don't live, we don't matter. There's going to be either an even or odd number of chickens out there at a certain time. Okay. Is is that a, a truth? Well, like, because, because what, to me, we could say, what is a chicken, right? When does, when does the chicken's essence end and, and the external environment begin, right? We could think, well... Uh, really, we're all just floating atoms, right? Mm-hmm. M- molecules in movement. But I think that philosophers could argue a theory that there are actually infinite and singular, right? Those those two dual perspectives of chickens. So there could be a scenario where there is an even number of chickens for mm-hmm. you in the yard, and but there's an odd number of chickens for me. I don't see why not. Yeah. We have, of course, we could have different... And they'll both be equally true. Yeah, even if I had them all here and I'm, I'm counting them, you could have... You choose to believe whatever you want, or, or maybe... That we could choose to believe with whatever you want, but I want to know a universal truth, what is true in the world. Mm-hmm. And I am coming from a presumption that 
There might be an even number, there might be an odd number, but there is a truth out there in the world that is waiting to be discovered, that to be true. And I think you're telling me that truth doesn't work that way. To me, it doesn't because you're trying to define a number. And if you have, say we have every person on the planet come and make their opinion on how many chickens there are so that we we hear conclusively what the majority belief is. What does somebody's opinion about how many chickens are in the yard have anything to do with how many chickens there are in the yard? Well, I'm saying their opinion because they are they come here, they count the chickens, and they say, it is my opinion, my belief, my observation, my reality, that there are this many chickens. But does their opinion, their reality, does that have any effect on how many actual chickens there are in the yard? No, it is their individual perspective. Yeah. And... If we're going to work to have a, a uterolaterally understood construct, then we would need to know why. Why do we need to know how many chickens there are? Does does twelve chick does an even number of chickens mean a good thing? Uh, how do, does knowing why we need to know that answer affect that answer? Because that motivation is going to tell our brain which rooms to open. And in what conjunction, what priority? Okay. So this is helpful. I think I am starting to understand how you see the world. Good. Good for me that I can explain it. <laughs> because these yeah. are uh, And I think it's uh, it more a failure of my understanding. I do apologize. Not at all. So I think as we're drilling down to what you're explaining about hypnosis and hypnotism, I think why it's been hard for me to understand where you're coming from is that you are describing hypnosis as a truth, but a personal truth, a subjective truth, a truth that works for you and for other people who have agreed that it works for. Absolutely. Yes, I do think hypnosis is a truth that we all are experiencing, whether or not that is intentional. We're all experiencing, so, so hypnotism is true for me, whether I believe it or not? True. Okay, so then it's a universal objective truth. Okay. Is that... I don't, yeah, well, universal objective truth, I'd have to... Means that it's true for everybody, regardless of what you think about it. Yes. Okay, so it's a universal truth. Yes. But you're telling me hypnosis is a universal truth, true for everybody, regardless. Counting chickens in the art is not a universal truth, that you can come up with different numbers of chickens in the yard, are, and both would be true. So what would distinguish in that sense hypnotism and chicken counting? Why is hypnotism a universal truth, like true for everybody? There's something that's really true about the world, yet a simple question of even or odd chickens, right. that's a subjective experience. Tell me if this answers that, that hypnosis is, and counting chickens is something you do. So hypnosis is truth because hypnosis is just a process. I, might, I was thinking maybe hypnosis like breathing. It's just a thing that you are doing. If hypnosis wasn't true, mm -hmm. if it wasn't correct, if it didn't reflect the universal truth state of affairs, let's mm -hmm. say, mm -hmm. how could we know that? How could I find that out? Is that possible? Well, you can, you know, which they have done, you know, a psychologist would go to, you know, hospitals or something and 
use a hypnosis script and not get any result, you know, especially not any expected result. So they might conclude from that experience, hypnosis isn't real, hypnosis doesn't work. So if somebody did that and the results showed no results or, you know, then, mm-hmm. then hypnotism or hypnosis wouldn't be real. Well, there's a case study and I think it defines the word nocebo, you know, instead of placebo, which is uh, your belief, nocebo would be the practitioner's belief. Uh-huh. And in this case study, the, the, uh, the medical doctor believed hypnosis could work for curing warts. So this person had warts all over their body. And this person being sort of a science mind said, let's do a factual testing. You're being hypnotized, only have warts removed from half the body. And it worked. You know, half the warts went away. He went and talked to his supervisor. And the supervisor says, well, no way was it this warts. It must have been some other you know, illness. Right. And this medical doctor didn't believe hypnosis would work for the medical illness. He had read that it would work for warts. Okay. So now that he no longer believed hypnosis could do anything to help this person, the person lived the rest of their life with half of their body covered with these lesions. So the the power of belief of the practitioner who's uh, facilitating the hypnosis is very important, more important in my opinion than the belief of the subject receiving the hypnosis. But that's just in the hypnosis or hypnotist client relationship because we can do self-hypnosis even on our own without anyone else's influence and you know media our past experiences all of that also hypnotizes us but that can happen uh, while we're alone so it sounds like in that example you're giving me the chicken example in the sense that if i believe that there are an even number of chickens and you believe that there's an odd number of chickens in some situations it could be more important what you believe that there are an odd number of chickens than what I believe. Well, I mean, depending on which of us is more um, influential, right? We could, I'm sure, convince through persuasion or harass, <laughs> through aggression, the other person to accept our beliefs. And then, like I'd said, with uh, some of the deeper states of hypnosis, hallucinations, you know, I actually could have your mind perceive the amount of chickens that I've told you to be accurate. But what too, if we consider that, you know, the female chickens might have the eggs or the male's chicken might have, you know, however they're making babies. I don't know the process of chickens, but then we could say, okay, yeah, there's 10 or 11, 12 physical chickens, but how many, you know, other chickens really are there because they're, how are we going to define the chickens? Are we going to define the chickens as being the shape, the size, this age at this space? Right. And then when I was talking about a universal truth, I think you're Discussing what I'm discussing, that, you know, there's, let's say there's 12 chickens out there, but there's four fertilized eggs in utero. And even if there are four fertilized eggs in utero, wouldn't that truth still be true for both of us? I would think so, yeah. I don't think we would disagree with that. So I'm I'm trying to understand, we can change the conditions of how many actual chickens there are or chickens that are growing. That doesn't, does that matter? I don't think it does. Okay. I mean, then we could get, we would be in an argument of semantics, right? How are you defining a chicken? Uh, what purpose do we need for counting these chickens? Is it a factual number that we need, or are we just in the context of are there enough chickens or not enough chickens? Yeah, I just. Uh, to, to I'm, me, so, I'm so I'm so sorry. No, you're fine. I just I just because in my mind, all those questions don't matter to whether how many chickens there are, right? I mean, all those questions of what the purpose of the chicken and the color of the chicken and what, you know, there are. Yeah, they don't. Yeah. It doesn't matter. The, that doesn't matter. Okay. But if if 
you want to ask a question, you um, should probably be ready for people to have a different answer. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But I just want to know if it's true. I want to know. Well, th you're okay. Then that would mean you have an anticipation for a universal truth, right? You want people to agree. Well, I want to, I want to believe in universally true things if it's a universally true thing. And that to me is where, because we are all so beautifully unique, the only universal truth is uh, that we exist. There might be others. I mean, I would love to find and, and discuss and see, but they would probably be similar to that base uh, Isn't realization. Isn't anything at that point true? Isn't anything at that point? Isn't everything true then? If the only universal yes. truth is that we only, you and I exist, and I say, this chair right here is a chicken, mm -hmm. and I believe it, right. and it's true. It's true for you, and we're connected on a universal realm. And so, yeah, it must be at, at some so this perspective chair of truth. is a chicken. True. Mm -hmm. So everything is true. Yes. If everything is true, how do we evaluate information at that point? How do we know... We have to, in some way, confine information to observe it because information is always evolving. And so we, we genuinely couldn't capture all information. Yeah. So we are going to take a segment of information and analyze it and make a construct of beliefs. So then we literally can turn over any interpretation of truth as creative as our minds could be. It could go on for infinity. Well, if you're practicing hypnotherapy and Tony is sitting next to you and Tony doesn't practice hypnotherapy and he right. says t hypnotherapy doesn't work and mm -hmm. let's say as defined as suggestibility that yes, people are suggestible, but let's say he says that it shows no long-term technique or issue mm -hmm. or help. Whatever your belief is about hypnotherapy, his is the opposite, let's say. Since truth is personal and subjective, it would seem that we would have no way to evaluate both claims. You are listening to Being Reasonable on WHUP. We continue our conversation with Lauren Hall as she discusses her belief in the power of hypnosis right after this short break. Hi, this is Mark Solomon, host of Being Reasonable. Do you like the show and want to help? Please subscribe to Being Reasonable as a podcast and maybe even write us a review. Thanks. Whatever your belief is about hypnotherapy, his is the opposite, let's say. Since truth is personal and subjective, it would seem that we would have no way to evaluate both claims. And this is where, you know, to the heart math, from what I understand, we vibrate at a frequency. And but how do we know that's true? As unique as our fingerprints. We are unique pieces of a symphony. But that's, what we, if I said that's true for you? Well, to me, that's true from science because they've, they've scientifically studied. I mean, have they studied every single person? No. But I said that's true for you. That's okay. not my truth. It's not your truth. I don't believe that. It. That we have a, a vibrating energy. Sure. And you don't, that's, and that would be completely fine that that's not the way you interpret existing. That's the way I interpret existing. Right. That's, I think that's what I'm saying is that I have my personal truth and mm -hmm. you can't tell me otherwise. And it's true. Right. Why would I put my energy into 
you know, pick your battles, right? And, you know, if, if we're... Um, but there, I guess we're saying that there is no universal truth. There is no truth out there that there's, there's no vibrating atoms or there's no not vibrating atoms. It's whatever you want it to be. Well, from what we know about energy, you know, it's to basic, it's uh, at a sense, a blank potential. And so then we can experience, right, like kind of like confirmation bias, we can experience whatever construct is our truth. So we're just reinforcing our own beliefs. But saying that energy is a blank potential, and if you're telling me that the only universal truth in this world is that we exist, that's something else. You're saying that there is actually another universal truth, that there is a blank potential of energy that we can draw on. I wouldn't say that could be a universal truth because not everybody would agree with that. And there's, I'm sure, even more and more right now that they're... Whether people agree with it, that's, to me, another question. I want to know if it's true, if it's real. Is that true? They've, you know, hypothesized and confirmed that theory in its, in a sense, a um, paradoxical theory to prove because you're going to, you know, if you're, if you're theorizing that you can experience what you believe, then how, I don't know, I can't imagine a way you could really test it. The world is just a illusion of our beliefs. Okay. So the world is just an illusion of our beliefs and there is no universal truth. It's all subjective. If we create our beliefs, if it's an illusion, whatever I want to believe is in fact true because there's no way to separate illusion from reality, because everything is an illusion, right? True, yes. And when you say we create our beliefs, I wish it were that simple. Instead, I think we're the result of beliefs. Some of those are ours. Most are maybe absorbed, like they're absorbed into us. And like generationally, we have a momentum of beliefs. Okay, I think this will help me. And I've used this example before, very briefly. Let's say I believe Buddy Holly... He's a musician who died. And let's say he rose from the dead and now he's a god. Mm -hmm. I actually believe Buddy Holly is a real god who mm -hmm. does godlike things. I believe it mm -hmm. to my core. Yes. Is it true? It is true. It might not be true for me, but it is truth because you've conjured it and it is your um, very absolute and literal truth because of your so it sounds resignation like in it. People can believe in anything and that is true. I can believe yes. that Buddy Holly is God and that is true. And you can believe whatever you'd like to believe and that is true too. And we're talking about the, the process of belief and not just thoughts. So I don't want people to think, okay, well, if I just think this one thing, then I should expect that it is true, right? I, I might think, okay, now I'm a millionaire and now this thing must be true. And if I don't experience that, then the things that I'm saying aren't um, But why wouldn't accurate. that be true? Why wouldn't that be true for them to think? Yeah. Well, because they're not, I mean, and that's where you get, and to me, into the law of attraction, which was the, the doorway to the rabbit hole that I'm in, which is how I started to study hypnosis. Okay. We experience existing at the entwinement of, of energy momentums. And so we can... Is that something that is true for you? That is an analogy that works for me and my... So that's just an analogy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that to me is a, a way that my brain can physically interpret an idea of how we are existing. 
So that is an analogy to interpret a universal truth. Hmm. And what is that truth? <laughs> well, that truth was that we are, we're, we are existing and that we can be in control. We are, at a sense, free. But I think about us as, uh, so a sea urchin, so all those tentacles are experiencing their individual life, right? They feel that current, mm -hmm. they ate those nutrients, okay. but as a whole unit, they are experiencing. They might not be conscious of what one of the spikes at the other you know, side of the urchin is feeling, but at a neurological level, they are in a collected consciousness with that experience. And some people can develop more ability to collect, to, to, um, so the universal open. truth there, when we're talking about humans and people is that there is a collective consciousness. Well, yeah, that's the universal truth. So it's sort of like I exist and it exists and then we exist, you know, we is, uh, as the, the oneness, but at that belief, then all of our egos would dissolve and you would in a sense be, uh, what Ayurvedic philosophy would call samadhi, right? You've ceased to be an individual and meaning that you are no longer at an individual construct of space or time. And so you're, you're in a sense, no longer analyzing nor thinking you're just being. Okay. And so for the purposes of this conversation, let's say that is a universal truth that we have a collective consciousness and there's really no separation of the self and we live in a cause and effect universe there, let's say that we have those assumptions. Okay. We hadn't talked about cause and effect, but yes, okay. that, I do agree with that. Or, okay. Yes. Oh, we don't live. Okay. Well, I, we, we do. It's, um, you know, I wish I could put better into words that analogy or that sort of non-physical interpretation that I have of what energy is doing, right, as it's existing, which is that it's experiencing and then it's sharing experience into its sort of collective consciousness, right? It's telling the guys at the back what it's experienced at the front because they're back there experiencing their stuff. So we're just compiling more and more masses of ever-evolving information. And so cause and effect to me might not be a thing that is true it, as much as it is a thing that we can observe I know I'm taking it into places that it's... No, no. I I don't know why I'm so dense this episode, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> Off the bat, what I really try to do in these episodes is I really try to step into my guest's shoes and really yeah. try to see the world as they see it. I'm really trying to do that. I'm trying okay. to see how you see the world. And it's just super confusing to me about how that works works. Well, let me uh, then... Because I see paradoxes that you don't see. Well, I see the paradoxes, which is why in my mind, when I follow these thoughts in the way that I interpret them, when I follow these thoughts forward to try to find a, a particular non-arguable premise, it's like my brain hurts. And then I regularly turn my brain off and get into my heart. So I think that as organisms, as we began to evolve into our abilities of being aware that we exist, it was really like kind of the gut biome, right? We were just organisms with the um, desire to reproduce, right? To digest and reproduce. And then we moved into circulation and mobility. 
And that's when we started to get neurons, which then amassed into this organ, you know, of our brain. And so our consciousness is the, the ever forward moving life and this complexity of how we observe reality is uh, pretty new. We don't have to observe reality in order for it to exist. Everything you said with the heart and the formation of the neurons and how all that goes, is that something that is true for you or is that something that is just universally true and we could discuss it or not discuss, it doesn't matter, it's just true. I haven't read it anywhere, so it's um, an idea. It, so it's a personal idea. It's I won't even say it's true for me. It's just an idea. It's a um, it's and a considering thought. And if I told you that me believing that Buddy Holly is a god, right. a real god, and it's an idea that is true for me, what do you think about my idea? Is it serving you? Does that give you? I say yes. It helps me. Then I would say awesome. I am so much of a better person yeah. than I was before this belief. Then, then I would honor and um, and support and uh, be happy that you have this belief. But does that have anything to do whether that belief is true? I can benefit from it. I believe that Buddy Holly is a god. And let's say for the purposes of this conversation, he's not. He's a dead musician. But I believe it. Right. And it helps me. What does it say about it being true? It is a delusion. And so if someone maybe said I like that your, mm -hmm. about your belief, right. they said it was a delusion. Mm -hmm. How would that sit with you? It would I mean it would hurt my feelings because they're attacking my personal yeah. um, you know, the things that I've personally decided I believe this and I like believing this and right. this helps me to believe this. Right. So they're um they make me feel bad, but they wouldn't be wrong. But they wouldn't be wrong. I don't okay. think they would be wrong. But they okay. couldn't argue that the things you believe are delusional and the things I believe are true because we could go back and forth forever and just say, that's a delusion for you. This is a delusion for me. Okay. So we can't separate in the human experience delusions from things that are real because either everything everything's a delusion in some regard. Well, the you might, you know, if I... Um, pour boiling water on myself, I might, I'll, I'll burn my skin, right? I mean, okay. but so there. So are... I could, but I could be deluded to think, oh, this is uh, magic healing water, and it's not going to burn me; it's going to heal me. And there are practices and, and places where people are doing things just like that. But there's a truth there. If I pour boiling water on myself, there's a universal truth there. Whether I will get injured, it's not universal because I know there's some people who. Um, can do, you know, so there's people who define can things. So you can, there are scenarios where people can have boiling water poured on them and they would not be burned. Yes. But there are, I mean, most people would believe boiling water is going to burn you. And so you, I don't see how you could test a theory of, well, let me just believe. It sounds like you just said a test. You pour boiling water on Well, no, I mean, people. how could I test to, to what, I mean, what quantity of, of affirmations or what amount of hypnosis is necessary. So there could be, in a scenario, a certain amount of hypnotism that could happen or suggestibility where someone could have boiling water poured on them and they wouldn't burn. True. Could there be a scenario in hypnotism? Let's say Jack, who's sitting next to you, very unfortunately, Jack lost his leg 
in a war. Mm -hmm. And he has one leg now. And he's doing the best he can. And he comes to you and he wants to grow his leg back. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked this. Could I wonder. He grow his leg back with the appropriate type of hypnotism? I believe it's very possible. I don't know anybody. I've never come across any study. To me, with everything that I've come across and learned, I do believe that is possible. There is a lot of collected consciousness that it is impossible. And so um, there's a book called Energy Matrix, and he puts this point together very clearly, which is that the power of your beliefs has to, in a sense, work with the power of the collected consciousness beliefs, or else you better spend a lot of time meditating on a mountain with that belief to generate sort of the heart um, dominance, the heart variant, the heart strength dominance. So what does the number of people who believe that Jack can grow his leg back have to do whether Jack can grow his leg back? Well, it's like the heart math, the study, they've they'll put people who have a very dominant heart coherence into metropolitans like New York, and they have a high coherence, sort of like a, um, a sentient peace state, and they go into a congested area and then crime drops. So that one person has influenced several thousands of people. So basically what you're saying is that if a lot of people believed that Jack could grow his leg back, then Jack could grow his leg back. Could we test this? Could we say, hey, 100 people, I want you to believe Jack can grow his leg back so Jack can grow his leg back and right. we can see Jack growing his leg back. I would back. love to test it. Sort of like the, the three Has that ever marathon. been done, anything like that? I haven't looked that much into if it ever has been done. Seems like it'd be a... But there are so many cultures, indigenous cultures, who are still very private to, to modern societies. And these cultures... Um, have a huge respect for energies and natures and rituals and et cetera. I believe they're probably doing things like that right now because we know that they can reset bones and they can break bones. So it sounds like this is quite testable that Jack, who wants to grow his leg back, we could come up with a test. We can come up with a way to see if this is a True belief, this, if this works. Right, but based on kind of like the confirmation bias, right, or the observer effect, it might be a challenge, but not an impossible challenge, but it might be a challenge to have people who do factually believe it and not just sort of cynically want to see if, if that test can be unequivocally proven to Okay, not so that sounds like then that's not a test because you it could be the scenario where you have people who quote unquote believe it, but don't really believe it. Because wanting is not believing. You know, Jack, I'm sure, wants his leg back. But his even that uh, premise of him saying, oh, wow, I really wish I had my leg back. So are we saying that the there's construct. no test then? Well, because Jack is wanting his leg back because his leg is gone. And what the, uh, I guess, let's say energies have to hear is that the leg is there. Okay. But what I'm hearing you saying is that we devise a test, but that test is not really a test. That's not a way we could find out whether it works or not. Because if it doesn't work, we could say that there is a reason why it doesn't work. I'm trying to think of a scenario yes. where we could have people believe that it works. And if it doesn't work, not saying that's the case, but if it doesn't work, then we would be satisfied that it doesn't work. I would not be satisfied that it doesn't work. 
I is would it be useful? I'd be satisfied that it didn't work at that testing. Is it useful to believe in anything? Wouldn't it be useful anything for Jack to that have hope? Can't be shown to be false. Is it useful to for believe anything? in anything at all that can't be shown to be false? Because if it can't be shown to be false, then how do you know it's true? I don't think it's useful because, in a sense, it's challenging all of the assumptions that our our body has sort of made in order to exist. And so if you take away all of that, then it might be at too much of a stress state because we get really stressed with the unknown. And again, so it seems like there's just no way we could know if it was false, if it was false in this scenario. I might think with us as evolved as we are. Because I'm gonna tell you. We can have an intuition. If we did some sort of test with Jack and hypnotism, Mm -hmm. and if Jack grew his leg back, not only would I completely understand how important hypnotism and hypnosis is, it would probably change everything I think about the world. It mm-hmm. would, I would have a cognitive breakdown because that is, would be such <laughs> an okay. amazing thing to happen. I've never seen it before. I've never brain. seen, I mean, maybe you've seen people grow limbs back. I've never seen it. And if that ha- happened, I saw somebody and I could, he's right in front of me and he did not have a limb. And then a few weeks later, he had a limb. That would be amazing. Well, we could get a little into the Mandela effect where it's so many amazing things are happening, but our brain can't process it. It, it, it challenges too many of our paradigms. And so we just so this are is... in a state of delusion, hallucination that, oh, Jack, I must have thought you lost your leg, but you never really did. So this has happened. Like people have grown their limbs back, but it's been so cognitively stunning for people that they're unable to put their head around it, so to speak. And that's why they don't synthesize it into their Mm, normal pattern of thinking. Yeah, that to me sounds accurate. Is that testable? It's somewhat testable because there are um, very academically, you know, intelligent, credible people who have studies and groups where they talk about phenomenon that they personally have experienced or they bring in other masses of people. And, you know, you hear several thousand people talking about they've seen this or they've experienced that. We can't discount it, but because we can't, most of our brains won't allow us to believe it. We just brush it into the background. So Jack is sitting next to you. He's lost his limb, unfortunately. And he is desperate to grow his limb back. He wants to be like other people. And if he came to you, what would you tell him about what hypnosis could do for him? Well, I would not say, hey, Jack, we're going to get your leg back. (laughs) Just just sit still and watch it grow. Why wouldn't you tell him that? That would be a a challenge for him to believe. And once we got past that challenge, or if we got past that challenge and he did believe it, and then I couldn't deliver it. He was not believing in it strongly enough. Well, nobody would believe that's possible because that's not what we're doing in hospitals right now. Well, he wants it to happen and he's coming to you for that to happen. So mm-hmm. he's, he's ready. He's want, he's suggestible. He wants it to happen. Right. So it'd be easier to think about like weight loss. So, cause that's something that comes in every day. People want to lose weight. And instead of me saying, okay, well I'm, I'll hypnotize you to go to the gym and stop eating cake. How about we do hypnosis so that you feel 
like that size four person that you've always wanted to be, because that means you're going to feel better about yourself. You're going to be more confident. You're going to be, um, really enjoying putting outfits together and all of that. So if we said to Jack, you're going to come in and we want you to feel like you have a leg, another leg. We want you to feel like you do. But emotionally, not, I don't want physical or I might start with Jack, you lost your leg, how tragic or, Mm -hmm. you know, how Mm -hmm. adventuresome that you were doing this crazy thing. And that's how it came off. And you want to feel good in your body, probably the way you felt before this accident. And how does that feel like for you? And most people can start to be self-aware of the body and say, oh, you know, that means my shoulders are are relaxed, but they're strong. You know, there's no tension in my forehead. You know, my heart rhythm feels pretty secure, right? I don't feel like stressed and not hyperventilating. Okay. And so he wants to feel that way, but he's not feeling that way right now because he's at such despair because of this accident. And so I'd say, okay, why don't we get you to feel into that good feeling state, right? Here's some imagery. Here's an anchor. Now you feel this way. And, and then, then he'd be ready to grow his leg Exactly. Back. Because then the functions of our body would be most efficient okay. at distributing, you know, the, the cells and all of that. And so to me, it'd be not the brain's decision of is the leg getting built again, but the body's decision. You know, the body would kind of be like, to me, a boardroom of analysts. Well, you know, how much energy is it going to take? What's it taking energy away from? You know, can we really get by without this leg? So if... Hypnosis worked in this in this situation. It would be because it worked, and he grew his leg back. And if it didn't work, it would be because the body has told itself for it not to work for whatever reason. Yeah, I'd say yes. That 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 is what I was saying. Our body is so fascinating, and considered to like the three minute mile. You know, no one thought we could. No one thought physically that that the body could function at that rate. And then it does, and then everybody, or yeah. not everybody, but you know, a lot of other people can confirm it. Three minute miles, pretty darn fast. What if I believe Buddy Holly is a actual god, and I pray to Buddy Holly, let's say, for Jack's leg to grow back? Okay. And if Jack's leg grows back, to me that says Buddy Holly exists and is a real god. And if yeah. Jack's leg does not grow back then that tells me that something about Jack's body has told Jack's body not to grow his leg back. You're right. And it's told you that thing based on that one experiment in time. And then you could test that experiment again and again. So I would say scientifically, you can't conclude that it's not going to work. It just didn't work at that uh, test run. So it sounds like we can do any sorts of tests. Oh, yeah. The, well, the, but it doesn't matter because we can interpret the test any way we want. Yes. And through any lens we want. So it yes. doesn't sound like we should be doing any sort of test at this point. Because no matter what the test is, it can be looked through the lens a person wants to look, at, True. look through. Yes. I could look through a lens that says, well, I guess Buddy Holly is not a real god. And that would be true. Or I could look through the lens of... Looks like Jack's body doesn't want to heal. And that would be true. Mm -hmm. From the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsboro, North Carolina, I'm Mark Solomon. And you've just listened to another episode of Being Reasonable. Questions? Thoughts? Connect with us at beingreasonableshow.com. See you next week.
Funk. Mm-hmm.